Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish, just like grip. Hey guys and gals out there in interwebs land, welcome back to Miyagi Mornings. I had about a week off. I was working probably harder than I normally do. Uh, getting ready for and then executing through TSP Spring 2021. Uh, we built a really cool low Miyagi as part of the feed-based systems, which kind of feeds into this topic in a, in a roundabout way about optimism, and I'll explain that in just a minute. We built a bunch of garden beds, and we had a great time, and I am tired, but I am back. Uh, I'm a little behind the curve today. Somebody asked me during the workshop if the Monday's Miyagi morning would be in front of the new Miyagi. I'm like, Nope, not going to happen because with the way the sun hits out there, I'd have to get up really, really early. And today, I wasn't about to get up really, really early. I rolled out of bed about quarter to eight, which is really late for me. And it was lucky that I got up then. Then I had to go get the evil vindictive Dana cat from the vet because the vet people were scared of her. She's like this big for those that haven't seen her. She's a little bitty, like eight pound cat. Um, the vet people were afraid of her and my wife couldn't get her out. I'm like, just come home. I'll take the car. I'll go get her. So I had to go get the cats of doom. Uh, so that delayed me on an already delayed day, and I just spent, like, oh, a long time, and just leave it at that, going through the email that I had not been able to go through. I batched it pretty quickly. I made some snap decisions. So if you emailed me and you would expect a response and didn't get one, you pretty much need to email me again because emailing me during a break like that, probably not the best thing. When I'm on vacation, I even check daily, right? During a workshop, everything goes to the students because that's my job. All right, so let's talk about optimism today. So the way this topic came up is during the workshop, as we were kind of finishing up the, the final build, which was the low Miyagi that's going to grow a plant called water hyacinth and other aquatic uh, plants and other aquatic, aquatic critters that feed both ducks and fish, the question came up, can I tell this person uh, an estimate anyway of how much money I should save on feed costs for my ducks and how long it'll take me to get the money that I put into that system back. And it wasn't judgmental, it was just a basic question. I said, you know, I really don't know and I won't be able to quantify it until we run it and we start actually using it, right? It's gonna, this is something that I don't know it's ever been done the way that we did it. And yes, I'll have great content coming from you going over the whole thing, showing you how it works. Uh, I've got some punch list stuff to work through and then I've got more things to add on to it for function stacking. Um, but as I was explaining this, it became clear that maybe at least a few people thought, well, maybe he's doing this because he's afraid, important word there, that we might not be able to get feed in the future. That's definitely a consideration. The fear part, no. But it may become more difficult to acquire livestock feed, especially this year. We have some real shortages on some key critical agricultural components that go into poultry feed. So that's a concern. And then my feed is kind of a premium high-end non-soy, non-GMO feed. And if there's shortages at all, that makes you know premium product even more likely to be pushed by shortages. So I know there's some, some ingredients in that feed that I use that are already showing shortages as well uh, outside of the world of isoflavin loaded, loaded phytoestrogen soy that I refuse to feed to my animals for good reason. But the fear thing bothered me. 
it stuck in you, just a little thing, and I, I explained, no, that's not that's the wrong word, uh, to the person that used it, and I don't think they even meant it that way, or like, just looking to fill in a blank, but it made me think about how so many people seem to think that preppers are fear-based, that we prepare because we're, we're afraid of what's going to happen, that we're not optimistic, and it made me realize I needed to do a Miyagi uh, Mornings episode with you guys on the importance of optimism. It, it's critically important. And uh, the reason is, and I'll say this before I go on. Yes, there is a segment of people who call themselves preppers, survivalists, et cetera, that are Looney Tune nuts, and they're afraid, and they get all their decisions based on fear, and hence they make really bad, crappy decisions. But the majority of people who call themselves preppers are very optimistic people. And what you, the way you can tell, they're always building shit. They're always building shit. Like, I just spent a week building eight new garden beds, no, six new garden beds. I'm sorry, six new garden beds for perennial systems, which are long-term, looking to the future. And this awesome new pond system, I put money and effort and blood and treasure into it. Why? Because future. And I want you to think about it this way. I watched a TV show a long time ago. It was a pretty good uh, medical show called House MD. If you haven't seen it, it's probably worth it. If it's on your streaming service watching for the beginning, it's a pretty good show. Um, a lot of stupidity in it, too, of course. Anything out of Hollywood will. But as shows like that go, it's entertaining and it's at least smartly written. There was an episode in it where a patient had been misdiagnosed with a terminal cancer. And it had been about six months since the diagnosis. Maybe six weeks, it might be more accurate. And when he found out he wasn't going to die, he was pissed off. Think about that. Mr. Jones, I know we said you had about six months to live six weeks ago, but it was a misdiagnosis. Now you're going to live. Now, he wasn't pissed off because of the emotion. He was pissed off because of the decisions he made due to the emotions and facing the reality of death. He basically spent all his money and set up like world travel and stuff like that and figured, well, by the time I get done with it, I'll be dead or near dead. So he had basically liquidated his savings to tour the world and do all the things he wished he had done. And that might seem like something an optimist would have done in the first place. But no, see, one of the reasons we don't overextend and overspend and what have you isn't due to fear. We do it because we know there will be tomorrow. We know there'll be another day and another day and another day. At least we hope that there will be. I mean, any of us could get struck by lightning or hit by a car or struck down with a terminal disease every day, but we don't sit around worrying about that. We go on with our lives. So optimism requires thinking of the future. Got it? It's real simple. I mean, if I take away your tomorrow, your optimism is gone. You want to know the person that commits suicide. The person that commits suicide is the person that says, right now, the way I feel is horrible and awful, and I don't want it anymore. And I have no reason to believe, at least in their head, that it will ever be any better than right now. I will only have this and worse forever. Not optimistic, does not want to think about the future, is not thinking about the future. The optimist, optimistic person builds stuff. I mean, it's amazing to me that my community is at times labeled fear-based when we preach things like, Building businesses, building up your homestead, creating communities, investing intelligently, using cryptocurrency and understanding it's the future of monetary systems. All of those things look where? The future. If you're not looking at the future, you're going to make stupid decisions. 
and this is not anything new. I wrote, when we started this show back in 2008, 12 tenets of modern survivalism. Tenant one, anything that you do to prepare for disasters and emergencies tomorrow should make your life better, even if nothing ever goes wrong. People that are fear-based, they only plan for failure, and hence, they make stupid decisions. And sometimes maybe that decision wouldn't be stupid if they were right about not having a future. The guy that thought he had six months to live in that show, that had no heirs to worry about, that was thinking, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to see all the things and do all the things I wish I'd done and never did, right? If that was true, then his decision was intelligent. And at least the character in the show based it on what seemed like good, solid medical information. But, you know, doctors can be wrong. Now, if that was me, I'd still be pretty happy about it. The character was never happy about it. He decided to sue the hospital and the doctor. I think it was uh, one of Wilson's patients, right? Over this because of catastrophic loss due to bad information. Do you know what I would have done? Well, I made all that money once. Let's get on it and do it again. Let's build another business. Let's go take this story, this amazing story that I have now. You know, let's just go ahead and go on all these trips. Cancel the ones you can, get a little bit of money back so that we have some seed money. And let's go. And let's go document this amazing journey and use it to spring off something else, to find something else. Do you know why? Because I'm optimistic. And I want you to understand that when I talk about things like the Great Reset. When I talk about the evil shit that our governments are doing, local, state, you know, federal and global, and evil shit oligarchs are doing all over the world. Evil shit globalists are doing, okay? That's all real. And guess what? It always has been. As long as the psychopaths have been in charge, which is as long as we've had true states, as long as there have been states, there has been psychopaths running states because most people don't want the power. That's something really important to understand. If someone is seeking power in the world beyond their means, they are a psychopath or sociopath or sometimes both because most of us don't want this job. Most people, if you said you can be president and I'll give you six months to get ready, would say, I don't want it. I don't want to be the president. Most people wouldn't want to be a governor. Most people wouldn't want to be on the town effing council or the school board. Do you know why? Because most people are not sociopaths or psychopaths, and therefore they do not want to exert power over other individuals. So sitting around and worrying that these evil bastards are doing evil things is pointless. We have a finite period of time on this planet. And what makes me optimistic is the people of this planet have been dumbed down, and it makes me want to weep for them. And I would do, you know, occasionally, at least in my heart and in my soul, I shed at least an internal tear for these people. However, I don't have time to live worried about people I can't help. I do my show. I do Miyagi mornings. I put out all the information I do. I do my training. I do what limited consulting people can get me to do. I take time to talk to individuals who, who get in touch with me. I can't talk to all of them, but sometimes I take time and I'm like, I can do something here. And I put all of that in because I believe in effing tomorrow because I'm an optimist. And I understand that there's a shitload of people that are going to get run over and ground up by this. There's a shitload of people that are going to line up and take a vaccine that's probably going to harm them in some way for a disease that they do not need it for that barely works anyway. You know what I can do about it? Square root of F all. All the information you need about this, if you want to make an informed decision, is there. If you go get it, I can't force feed it to you. 
What I can do is work with the willing. And what I can do is build. That is the definition of being an optimist. And you won't ever build shit without optimism. Do you know how optimistic you have to be to say, you know what? I'm going to quit my job and start a business. Do you know how optimistic you have to be when that business is crushing you to the ground, but you know it's not because it's wrong, it's because you've got it wrong, and it's just going to take a little more to come out the other side of it and to continue through it, to look your wife in the eyes like I did at the beginning of TSP and say, I know that I'm working 12 hours a day in a corporate job, and I'm barely awake where I'm not working on building this, but give me six more months and it will all be worth it. Do you know how much optimism that takes? A metric fucking shit ton. And let me tell you what you need to do about optimism. My old unit in the Army, Echo 228th Aviation, right? The winged warriors out of Panama. Get some. That was our, that was our company motto. Get some. Somewhat, whatever the hell you need to get whatever you're trying to do done, done, because we do not have tasks. We don't have jobs. We have freaking missions. And if that mission means that somebody's got to die to get it done, then that's what it means. That's the military. That attitude is the attitude that winners have. It doesn't always have to mean that somebody's going to die. It's the attitude. It's the attitude. Obviously, you know, I'm trying to build a business. This guy's in my way. So I'm going to hit him with a brick in the head and kill him. That's not good. That's not what that means. What that means is whatever it does take. A little bit of blood, a little bit of sweat, a whole bunch of tears. Don't give a shit. It's worth it because tomorrow. Optimism. Optimism. The entire point of the way that humanity has been treated is to destroy optimism. That's how they control you. By, that's how they break you. That's how they domesticate you. The cow doesn't try to push through the fence that's going to zap it because it's domesticated. Because it's domesticated. It's given up. It's lost its optimism. I live here, so you know what it settles for? Hay and straw and being milked. Sound like the people you know? When they destroy your optimism, oh, I can have some UBI if I'm a good little boy and do what I'm told? Okay, yeah. Ooh, we got a stimulus. Yay, here's some money that's going to cost you five times what they gave you in future liabilities as they destroy the money you already had in the bank. You'll make that deal because you don't have any fucking optimism. Because you believe this is as good as it's going to get. You won't build anything. You might even build a doghouse or something like that, but you won't build anything that matters. You won't build anything thinking about next year, next week, next freaking century. We are at a point in humanity right now where we need to be thinking seven generations out. How is what I'm doing and what I'm teaching others going to impact my great, great grandchildren? You know who does that? Optimists. I don't care how bad it is because there's always opportunity. In fact, in some ways, the more asleep the people around you become, the greater the opportunity. As I've said on the show before, fortunes were built through the depressions in this country, through the early 1900s depression, through the Great Depression, through the World War years. Through the stagflation of the 1970s, people built fortunes because the opportunity lies when things are bad, not when things are good. An old mentor of mine named Frank Madrin once taught me, and this guy was a redneck from North Carolina, from the mountains of North Carolina, with a Harvard MBA. 
Harvard MBA holding redneck is a dangerous man. And he said to me, Jack, and I was very young at the time, and he was talking about how, you know, when times are good, everybody looks successful. He said even a turkey can fly in a tornado. That's another saying, rising tides float all boats. But the opportunity comes when the chips are down, if you're looking to the future. Hope this was a good one for you on the first one back. Might be a little out of my rhythm. Voice might be a little strained, but uh, it's going to be a good week of Miyagi warnings. And we'll try to get you some footage, even if it's not in the Miyagi morning show, of that new Miyagi this week. Take care, guys. See you tomorrow. Hey guys, welcome to the Tuesday edition of Miyagi Mornings. I've been getting a ton of questions, both for Miyagi Mornings and just for the podcast in general, about cryptocurrency and a ton of questions about wallets. A lot of the questions are things I feel like I've answered, but maybe it wasn't all put together in one place. I'm going to try to do that today. I think there's a lot of confusion about crypto wallets, and I think it all starts out with the belief that the wallet holds the crypto. And that makes sense because if we have a wallet that we can, can, you know, conventionally think of like a billfold, well, you put your money in it. So you say you have a wallet and you have money in your wallet. Crypto doesn't exactly work that way. It's really not what's going on. Before I proceed, I want to let you know there's some resources in the video notes down there. And if you're listening to the podcast, you can look up the individual video and find these resources. And that's so that I can do this in 15 minutes or less, because this is a deep subject. And I'm not going to give every little thing and how to do every little thing. I just want people to come away from this and go, okay, I get it. And if they don't get it, they can listen again, and then they'll get it. So the first resource is a thing called Dash School. Dash is a type of cryptocurrency. They have a six-video playlist. The first three videos in it are basically how crypto works. Nothing to do with Dash. And the next three are specifically how Dash addresses that. It's pretty old, but it works. And it it is the best on-ramp to going... Oh, that's how all this works. If you struggle with any part of how can this possibly be a thing, that is the resource that you need to use. The next is, since I'm going to talk about wallets today, I'm going to kind of gloss over the difference between a light wallet and a full node wallet. And since I'm going to do that, I have a video previously where I explain that in detail. So if you're not sure how that works, you can go watch that video and append it to this. And after this video and those other two videos, you should be in great shape. And should you decide you want to go into cold storage, which I'm going to explain today, the basics of what that means, using what's known as a hardware wallet, there's a link where you can see various hardware wallets and make a choice based on what you want. So let's start out with the very basics behind a transaction and how crypto works. Because you can't understand wallets if you don't understand this. All crypto with you know, is made up of basically what we call a public address a public key, and a private key. With that information, you don't need a wallet, right? In general, you don't need a wallet. You'll have to pick a wallet to do this with, but to move, control, and to steal cryptocurrency. If you have those three pieces of information, honestly, all you need is a public key, a private key, um, and you need to know what crypto you're dealing with. So if you have a public key and a private key and you think it's Bitcoin Cash, you try to steal somebody's Bitcoin cash, and you're out there trying to do that, and it ends up being like some like you know crypto on a totally different protocol, like I don't know, Lisk or something. It ain't gonna work. Now a lot of people could figure out, like or at least narrow it down based on the way those are done. It's in this family or whatever, but that's 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 the data that's necessary. So when I send you a transaction, let's say in Bitcoin, what happens is you give me an address, and that address is related to a public key keys, unlock things, and a private key. And 
only you really know those two things, but a public key can be derived. It's not a straightforward process. It takes a little bit of sophistication, but the average person sophisticated enough to steal cryptocurrency can certainly look at an address and figure out a public key to go with it. And people that say it can't be done, there's a reason they call it a public key, okay? Um, and then there's a private key. That's something that no one should ever know but you, you know, and maybe the person that, that, that's going to inherit what you have should know at least where to find it if you die. And with those things locked together, right, those things can unlock and move this data. Because all this is is numbers. It's code. So your wallet doesn't actually hold, I don't care what kind of wallet it is, it doesn't actually hold jack diddly crap. It is a means by which you access that information without having to type in strings that are this long to make something happen, without having to be like programmer light to move money around the blockchain. It's an interface. For those familiar with computer terms, it's a GUI, graphic user interface. It's some way that you can use cryptocurrency in a way that's very straightforward to the average person. So the wallet itself controls the information that moves things around and says, in the blockchain, this new thing is about to happen. I'm sending money to Bill, and this cryptocurrency now is under Bill's control. But it doesn't know who Bill is. Now, maybe you can figure out who Bill is with that data. But what it's really saying is this address with these keys now controls this block of currency, and here's how to access it. That's all a wallet really is a way to access the information that's already there. If you've ever heard about lost Bitcoins, they're there. They're not gone. We can even see them. We can look at them and go, that thing has not moved since 2012. It's probably lost. It's there, but no one has the keys. So whoever had the keys lost them or lost the device that, con that contained them. If anybody can ever crack it, they could recover them. If you ever find that information, public and private key, you can access that information. All Walt does is hold that in a way that makes it easy to understand. So let's talk about some wallets in general and what they actually mean and what they actually are. Um, let's start off with a paper wallet. This is considered outdated, archaic, and not secure. It's actually pretty secure. Um, it is basically that you set up a wallet with an address and then you have on a piece of paper public key, the private key, and the address. And then you can receive deposits to it. And if it gets put in a shirt pocket and washed, it's gone. If you make copies of it, the copy falls in the wrong hands, and somebody can take over and control that crypto. So there are some security risks to it. But if somebody were to create a paper wallet, deposit cryptocurrency into it, laminate more than one copy, and lock them in separate places, that would be cold storage that we'll get to at the end, and it would be pretty damn secure. Now, there's some flaws in this. There's not a lot of uniformity in different paper wallet generators. Um, generally, you know, you set up a paper wallet and that means all the currencies at one address. And what that means is that if I have that address, I can see all the deposits, all the transactions, and a total balance on it. So more sophisticated wallets, you have multi-address wallets, not multi-currency, but multi-addresses for the same currency, etc. Makes things a little harder to figure out. Especially when we're not using a privacy coin. But all in unless somebody gets their hands on that piece of paper, it's going to be very difficult for anybody to hack that or get access to it. And in, unless you don't store it right, it's probably not going to go away. And you'll see pictures online of destroyed and you know got wet and smeared and whatever. Please understand that most of those wallets were 
back when you know Bitcoin was like worth a dollar and people didn't take it seriously yet, I I wouldn't use a paper wallet. But it isn't as bad as it's made out to be. It's just a record of the important information to be able to access it. So then there are what are called um, dedicated currency wallets. These are all non-custodial, meaning you control it. You you control the keys. You hold the keys. And there's two different kinds. There's a light and a full. I'm not going to go into that today because I have another video that covers it completely. But this would be where you know you want Bitcoin Cash, so you go to the Bitcoin Cash website, you download the Bitcoin Cash wallet for Bitcoin Cash. And whether it's a full node, that simply means that you are participating on the whole blockchain, or a light node, which means you're just basically using the blockchain to know what you have going on and send and receive money. You want more? Again, go watch the other video. That just means that you got your wallet from the people that made the currency. And that's a pretty good practice, especially if you don't hold a lot of different cryptocurrencies. It, it, it kind of makes sense because it's the dedicated wallet for the product. And that's all that is. And it's a software wallet, meaning it lives on your computer or it lives on a mobile uh, device or something like that. And that means the one weakness to it, it is connected to the web. But I have never heard yet of anybody successfully hacking a good, well done, especially, you know, been out a while, proven software wallet being able to get in. And it would be difficult because everybody is maintaining their own private and public keys. There's no centralized database to hack into. The person that made the wallet, whether it's a multi-currency wallet that we'll get to next or a dedicated wallet, couldn't tell you your keys if they wanted to. And if you gave them permission, You'd have to actually give them visibility. I'd take a screenshot, send it to them, right? So, the different walls work different ways. I want to get how you see and reveal your public and private keys for your currency. I just want you to understand that it's pretty damn secure, even in that environment. It is connected to the internet, maybe, right? But most of the time, people that run software wallets have their computer connected to the internet. If you're on a full node wallet, that means you're participating in the blockchain. Even if you're not mining, it means you have the entire blockchain downloaded to your device. It's cumbersome, but if you have the computing power for it, you're helping out. Generally, people who are concerned for the project, they want to help, run full node wallets. It is the most secure. Then there are the light wallets, and they're a lot like the software wallets we're about to cover. And generally, those have a seed phrase, right? And full node wallets, a lot of times, don't. Some do, some don't, but many of them don't. You have to rely totally on your public and private key, right? What's a seed phrase? A seed phrase is a list of characters or a list of words that are like a password that allow you, if you had a, a wallet over here, and you installed a new wallet on this computer over here, if you have that seed phrase, you put it in, boom, that wallet becomes this wallet. They're the same. And they sync. And that's generally, again, in the world of light wallets. That's as far as I'm going to go with that. Just know that you could have 100 copies of the same wallet, 1,000, 10,000, theoretically no limit, because all it is is data that accesses information that's actually somewhere else. No cryptocurrency can ever actually be possessed by a person. You control it, you don't possess it. Because anybody with the same information can move it around. Got it? So all the wallet is is a storage of the access information. It doesn't actually hold anything. That brings us to multi-currency software wallets. All of these wallets, to my knowledge, and I'm not an expert, are light wallets, meaning they're not downloading blockchains. I can't even begin to imagine running a multi-currency wallet where all the currencies are full. Though I know there is one wallet, for instance, where you can run full node wallets inside the, 
the, the, the multi-currency wallets, but you're still running a full node outside of it, right? So just think of it as just put that aside. That's advanced strategies. I just don't want any, well, actually, you know you're wrong. I just cut that off. And uh, so, like, this is like Jax. This is like Exodus. This is like Coinami. And they'll have a list of the crypto assets that they're capable of doing. And they work, they're non-custodial. So they work the same way that the, the, the light version of, let's say, the Bitcoin Cash or Litecoin wallet work. You don't run a full blockchain. It relies on nodes on the network that it accesses. But you hold your public key, your private key, and your public address inside that wallet. That's what you actually are maintaining a record of. And these go into various different options. You have things that are just straight-up wallets. They're designed to be wallets. You have some that allow for proof of stake. Like Exodus, there's certain currencies like Algorand and Cardano and some others that you can earn some interest on. I'm not sure exactly how Exodus manages that, but here's my guess. I hold Algorand in a uh, Exodus wallet, and I earn rewards. There's a little bit of Algorand you have to pay to unlock your rewards if you're doing that versus holding in a dedicated Algorand wallet. And what I assume, I could be wrong, but what I assume Exodus is doing is basically pooling all the rewards and earning their own rewards against the pool until you pull yours to the side. I don't think there's a lot of risk there because, you know, if you're earning one Algo Rand a day, that's a dollar and thirty cents right now, and that would be a lot stake to earn that much. So there's not a lot of risk with that being in that pool. And then when you claim it, it goes into your own private key and it starts to earn its own rewards at like compounding interest. So that's how that works. In general, most multi-currency wallets, you're not worried about that. Most of the time when you do proof of stake, you want to go to the dedicated wallet like ARC. I hold my ARC and my ARC wallet type thing. Um, but those are just for convenience. Now I have one place that holds my Bitcoin, my Ethereum, my Litecoin, my ARC, my you know whatever else. What you'll find is almost no light wallet's going to hold all the currencies you might be interested in. Or I'm sorry, no, no multi-currency wallet's well, going to hold all the currencies you might be interested in. Just like no exchange probably is going to have all the currencies you might be interested in at some point. So you pick the one that works the best for you. Uh, the three I just mentioned, I like. They have a proven track record. I've never heard of anybody like hacking their databases or something like that. Uh, again, Jack's Liberty, Coinami, and Exodus. Those are three that you can look at. Some currencies... Do not go in any multi-currency wallet for right now. One would be Pirate Chain. There's so much encryption there. No one's done it yet. I think whichever wallet does it, it's going to be a good move for them, and it's going to be a good move for Pirate as well. Uh, so that's one we won't get deeply into today. Um, a custodial wallet. I hate these. These are where you don't control your public and private key. Somebody else does. They're in custodianship over it for you. Coinbase. If you're holding your cryptocurrency on Coinbase, the reason we all hate it is not because we think Coinbase is in league with the NSA. But in the end, they're a company that are in business to stay in business, and they have access to your funds, like a bank does. And if they get a, a, a notice from the Department of Making You Sad, the federal government says, Bill has a bunch of cryptocurrency with you, and we want it all locked, they're going to do it. And they're going to be able to do it because Bill doesn't control his private and public keys. They're in custodianship. Got it? Okay, so we get out of there. Exchanges. This is why I don't like holding crypto on exchanges. Somebody else has access to your crypto. That's not secure, and it's certainly not private. It's as secure as the company wants it to be. Now, to be fair, you know, Coinbase, Bitrix, Binance, right? These companies have done business 
as best they can, and I do believe they care about your privacy and your security, or they wouldn't stay in business. I'm a believer in the market. I'm also a believer that if something can go wrong, sooner or later it will. So if I put money on an exchange or I buy crypto on an exchange, it's there long enough to do whatever it needs to do, and it goes away into one of these other options. That's why we do that, because somebody else has access to it. Next, a hardware wallet. People look at a hardware. This is not a hardware wallet. This is a USB drive. But you know, they might look like this, and they basically are kind of a sophisticated drive that allows you to basically hold cryptocurrencies. And they do. They all have different assets they pres- uh, they support. So if you want to hold a particular asset and you're buying, you know, a Ledger Nano or something like that, you need to make sure that it supports that. And then different ones for different costs have different amounts, numbers of wallets you, or numbers of currencies they support. You want to make sure it supports the currency you want to hold, and you want to make sure that um, it also allows for as many currencies as you want to hold, or you need another one to, to get there. Some of them, like for instance, also, I think Ledger Nano S supports five. Don't excuse me if I'm wrong. Um, I'm not going to recommend any specific one because I think you need to know what you're doing enough to pick one out before you start using one. And I'll say the thing about a hardware wallet is, and people ask, why don't I talk about them more? Because I do mostly newbie type videos for crypto. I just try to onboard people and let them learn as they go from there. If you have $500 worth of crypto, spending $200 on a hardware wallet to protect it, I don't think makes a lot of sense. If you have $20,000 worth of crypto, I think it does. This leads us to cold storage. Again, though, if this was a hardware wallet, it does not actually have any cryptocurrency on it. People say, I lost the the laptop that has the bitcoins on it. No, you lost the laptop that has the information on how to access the bitcoins. That's what a hardware wallet is. Different way of packaging the same information, public key, private key, address, currency type. That's all that it is. The difference is all that data, if it's stored here, and we plug it in, and we access it, we do our thing, we send and receive money, Okay. then when we're done, take it out, Lock it away somewhere safe. Guess what? There's no way anybody can access the information that's contained on here. It doesn't mean the cryptocurrency is still not out there in what we call the blockchain universe, but it's now in cold storage because there's no way it can be accessed. When we plug it in, it's it's hot. We pull it out, it's cold. Conversely, if I had... Here's a wallet. right? Small wallet since I got my... Uh, my Ridge wallet years ago, I've not carried this wallet, um, but this is my old wallet I carried for years. Let's say this is now a software wallet on an iPhone or a device of some sort, uh, a laptop computer, something like that. And I only keep it there or maybe in two places where I do the same thing. And now I disconnect it from the Internet. It's cold storage. It's cold storage. You need to have it backed up. No matter how you do any of these things, you need backups of backups. Because you have a lot of money at stake here. But it's still cold. doesn't matter. It's a phone. Right? I've turned it off. I've disabled the Wi-Fi, etc. And I know, oh, the NSA can find your phone. No, not when it's completely powered down. Honestly, you could let the battery go dead. Good luck, guys. Right? It's, still, it's not what I would do for cold storage. I'm just trying to make the point. If you had a computer with no Wi-Fi capability at all, zero, and you have it hardline connected with a data cable to your router. And that computer is nothing but like an older computer that you use for your crypto. And whenever you're not using it, you unplug it, it's cold. Because it's not hot. That's all it means. 
So I hope this one went 20 minutes. I hope this doesn't create more questions than it answers. And I know it's not going to answer everything, but if you didn't understand it, you listened to it twice, you should come away with a basic understanding of this, and then you should understand the following. It's all that you need. It's all that you need because the average person is completely fine starting out with a multi-currency software wallet like Jax, Coinami, Exodus, etc., depositing their currency there, backing up their seed phrase in at least two different locations, you'll be fine. Millions of people do it every day. We don't have people getting their shit stolen off it. Don't believe the FUD, right? Um, you'll be fine. And as you get down the road and you get to where you've accumulated more wealth and you need something like a hardware wallet, you can learn that as you go. And it's not that hard because, again, it's just data and a way to access things. This is one of the problems with a paper wallet. You don't know if you really got paid and you can't send money with it. You have to then do something to recover it into a storage wallet. This is why it's outdated and archaic. But sometimes there is a thing. There is a thing as security by obscurity. So I'm just going to say it's worth learning a little bit about them because there could come a day where... I don't know, a paper wallet might be like, oh, a Vatican bearer bond was in uh, 1970. Just saying. Take care, guys. I'll be back tomorrow with something non-crypto. Well, hello there, folks. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of Miyagi Mornings. This is episode 78. 78 times we've gotten together in this format. And today I'm doing something I've only done a couple times in those 78 episodes, and that is... The Miyagi Mornings episode today is directly connected to an episode of a podcast, in this case, on the same day. Today, um, at it'll be 12 o'clock my time, but it's not a live stream or anything like that. It goes out in the normal podcast feed. I will be uh, interviewing Dr. Jordan Somerville, who is the author of The Optimal Dose, which his book's been around for a very long time, and it's about vitamin D, as you might have ascertained from the title of today's episode. Now... As old as that book is, I've actually found out more information. I'm very excited to, uh, to discuss with Dr. Somerville because I'm sure he didn't quit after he wrote that book. But I've learned about other things like uh, the co-use of vitamin K2 and things like that. I'm not going to give you any numbers, doses, anything like that, at least the YouTube police say I'm being a doctor today. Um, but I'll just tell you the optimal dose is a lot higher than what most people are comfortable with. And if you read Dr. Somerville's book, you're taking the advice of a licensed MD. Okay, so, uh, and then there are other books that I will take, and I will put all three of the primary books I recommend in the video notes below, and I'll give you a little tip. I'm going to do Dr. Somerville's book first, and then the other two, second, third. I'm not even going to go over what they are today, but I recommend you read them in the order that I list them in the video notes, because they, uh, they're kind of an evolution of an idea. And I think that if you try to read the third one first without the framework or the background, you're going to have a, a difficult time uh, with it. The last one, the third one, is written at a very high uh, medical level, especially the second half of it. And it is not written by a doctor, but it is specifically citing and working with the results indirectly with feedback from the results of two separate doctors that have used vitamin D to treat things like, yes, multiple sclerosis. Uh, with an incredible rate of success, not reversing the disease, but halting it. So if vitamin D can do that, what else can it do? What I actually want to start out with is just maybe a different way of looking at this. We pride ourselves, in North America specifically, the West in general, Western Europe, the United States, uh, Australia, all of the countries you would call it Western nations, we pride ourselves in having an amazing healthcare system. Maybe it's expensive, but it's the best in the world. 
and we are fortunate, and we, we consider ourselves a healthy society. And we consider ourselves a healthy society for some pretty diluted reasons, because we don't have open sewage running down the streets, because we have electricity and clean water in most homes. So we there's a whole shitload of ways that people die in the world. We don't die here that have nothing to do with us being healthy. They have to do with us having a, a relatively clean and uh, climate-controlled society that we live in. We are not a healthy society. We are not, I'm going to say it one more time, we are not a fucking healthy society. We are a sick society, I believe, by default and by design, both, because it is very profitable when you have a sick society if you are a sick-ass oligarch or a sick-ass member of the government. It is very profitable. It's incredibly profitable. You sell people garbage food, it causes disease, then you sell people medications for the disease they wouldn't have if you didn't sell them the food. Then it just begins there. And I don't want to go any further with that today. But if you said, Jack, I want you to boil it down nuts and bolts, give me two, three, four factors that cause the majority of disease in America. I'd say I can do it with two. One, diet. The standard American diet is the cause of the majority of, of lifestyle-style diseases that we have in the country today, period, and infinity. And this includes people that think they're eating healthy because instead of eating a candy bar, they're eating a granola bar, yogurt, and honey, which has probably more sugar than the freaking candy bar in it. Our diets are sugar-based, and they have led to an epidemic of obesity in many of our major cities today, there are as many dialysis clinics as, let's say, the number 6 to 10 um, in, in ranking, like fast food restaurants. Like, there's not as many as McDonald's and Subway, right? But, like, I don't know, White Castle. There might be as many freaking, you know, dialysis clinics in some place like Atlanta or Dallas or Philadelphia as there are White Castles or, or, or other fast food restaurants of that level. When you need that level of dialysis treatment in your country, you are not healthy. And the majority of kidney failures related to obesity and type 2 diabetes. That's just one example. So diet is one. The other is vitamin D deficiency. I think we have a global pandemic for sure. It ain't COVID. It's vitamin D deficiency. And what we consider as adequate vitamin D is not adequate. And I don't want to steal Dr. Somerville's thunder, but I'll give you some basics of this that I learned from his book. When we discovered vitamin D in the 1920s, we had an epidemic in our country of rickets. It's a issue with how your legs develop and how children walk and things like that. And they figured out that there was this thing they called vitamin D. They didn't know what it was, but they had A, B, and C, so it became D, not even a vitamin. But they called it a vitamin because they didn't know. Understanding what they knew, which was limited about vitamins at the time, they knew we only did a little amount and sometimes too much of a specific vitamin could be dangerous. We were heading into the Great Depression and soon after into World War II. We did not have a lot of time to dedicate to this, so we didn't. They determined that the safe blood levels of uh, uh, vitamin D in the human body were somewhere in, uh, in the neighborhood, and I, I don't remember the exact spec, but 300. There's a state like 300 nanoliters per you know, milliliter or something like that, right? That, that was the safe number. But they weren't sure. So you divide it by three and said it was 100. 100 is probably optimal. And no one has ever had any of the problems that can come from overdoses of vitamin D in a 100 to 150 range. But yet we say people, you're fine if you're like over 25 to 30, somewhere in that range. It's even 20, some, some will say. No, you're not. You won't get rickets, but you're going to have other problems. And I want you to think about some of the things that vitamin D does for us. 
vitamin D upregulates and downregulates immune response. It does both jobs. It's the commander. Think of your immune system like an army, and we've got a, a, a city over there. The, the, the enemy has infiltrated the city, and we're going to have to blow up some of the city even though we don't want to because it's a friendly city to get the enemy. So the commanders figure out the buildings that are probably there, and they unleash artillery, and they start hitting those places. Now, if you leave the army to itself, and you don't have a commander in place, they're going to keep shooting so there's no city left. That's what's known as a cytokine storm, and it's the number one factor that's killing people from COVID today. And 100% of those people that die of that are deficient in vitamin D. 100%. 100%. One more time. Go ahead, send it to me, YouTube. 100%. I defy anybody to prove this untrue with science. 100% of the people who have died of COVID from cytokine storm, which is the vast majority of people who have died, Especially if you take out the person that was so old, so sick, and so frail and in hospice that if somebody blew on them, they were going to go anyway. You talk about people with any chance of survival at all. They died of COVID. It's 9 out of 10, cytokine storm, and all 100% of those 90% vitamin D deficient. Because what is a cytokine storm? It's when the immune system starts attacking your cells. When a virus is inside a cell, you can't have a basic immunoresponse where like a white blood cell just eats it. Like you learn about in school, you got to or antibody attacks it. You got to attack the cell itself. You actually have immune T cells, killer cells that, that kill your own cell. They're bombing the city. So vitamin D goes, hey guys, let's go attack. But it also goes, hey guys, pull back. So two things happen when you're vitamin D deficient. The body takes way too long to attack. The enemy infiltrates and occupies a lot more space. And then when the attack comes, the army goes out and attacks all of those occupied structures, which are cells in the human body. And then there's no commander going, hey, okay, we got them. Cease fire, cease fire. Hence, allergies, in many cases, probably related to vitamin D deficiency. What's an allergy? Allergy comes up because there's an overactive immune response, an immunoresponse to an allergen. It's the same thing, just the same but different, man. Okay, So you're allergic to a certain kind of pollen. That pollen, you're exposed to it. Your immune system is attacking yourself. It's confused. This pollen is no threat to you, but it thinks that it is. So it attacks. Why? Probably because your, your immune system is down-regulated because you're, you're vitamin D deficient, if that's the cause. right? Then, once it starts the attack and the eyes get puffy and the nose starts running and all that down your throat, okay, yeah. there's no point where the vitamin D goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Come on, guys. Come on. We were, that, was, that was target practice only. Like, range is cold now. So it continues. And how many other problems do we have like this? Now, this is where the two worlds. Remember I said diet and obesity caused by that diet? And vitamin D deficiency is where they mix. If you look at a vitamin D capsule, you'll see that it's generally suspended in something like MCT oil. They don't do that because they think MCT oil is good for you. It just it works really well for the purpose. Vitamin D is fat-soluble doesn't dissolve in water. has to be in fat to be used. Okay? So if you're really, really fat, like obese, a lot of the vitamin D, even if you're supplementing, goes into the fat cells and the rest of the body doesn't have access to it. So obesity causes vitamin D deficiency and vitamin D deficiency contributes to obesity. So you want to fix your life? Get your vitamin D levels tested. Do not be afraid to be up 80, 100, 120 nanoliters or whatever the hell it is, right? Don't be afraid of it. It's not going to hurt you. 
Read Dr. Somerville's book. Tune in today for today's podcast. Read the other books that I recommend. Do more research on this. Get off the standard American diet. You should be keto or some form of low-carb, primal paleo, something like that. A huge quantity of your calories should come from good fats. That's usually from something with a face or a few plant sources like avocado, and to some degree coconut oil and a few other things, but no soy, no corn, none of those oils. They're toxic. They're not human foods. And when you hear things about ketogenics and you hear that like a person is getting 80% of their calories from fat or 75% of their calories from fat, don't let that scare you. That doesn't mean that your plate is 75% by volume fat. This is a caloric number. A ribeye steak is almost a perfect ketogenic food. It has exactly the right ratio of fat to protein. And there's other ways to get your fat. We have dairy fats like cream and butter. There's lots of ways to do this. But I don't want to make this a, 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 a commercial for keto. There are other diets that cut the sugar and the carbs down to levels that the body can tolerate. And a lot of you guys that are skinny and you think you're healthy because you're skinny and you're eating all of these sugars and, and, and grains and everything else, you're not. I don't know how many people I've heard from, they're, you know, 40 years old, mid-40s, they're the same weight or within 10 pounds of what they were in high school. They go to the doctor to get tested. they got high A1C, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, etc. And they look thin, but when you look, they got a little pooch belly. And they just carry it different. They're an ectomorph instead of an endomorph in body form. It doesn't prevent you from ending up on dialysis. It doesn't prevent you from blowing up your kidneys. Vitamin D and the right diet. I don't think that will fix all of our problems, but I think it will fix some portion of almost all of our problems. I think it would reduce cancer rates, and I've got the, I've got the evidence to prove it. It's up to you to go do it for yourself, though. I'm not a doctor. But I'm telling you, these are two areas that you can improve your life with, and I, I try not to be political here, but I also try to be factual. The people in charge benefit from you being sick because you can sell solutions into sickness you fix the illness and go to wellness, you've lost a customer. And sick people are compliant. Deficient people are compliant. And the last thing I want you to think about is how this relates to things like plants, where we know these things intrinsically, but yet we don't translate them to a human being. We can have a field planted with a crop, and it can look like it's doing really well, let's say, in um, late April, going into summer. Looks great. And a soil scientist, like let's say Dr. Elaine Ingham can come there and take a soil sample, look at your mineral and nutrient deficiency, look at your biology in your soil, and say this soil is deficient in these micronutrients and it has an unbalance in biology. And by mid-July, when the sun gets really hot and the plants are stressed, here's the disease your plant's going to get, or here's the pest your plants are going to attract, period. And the farmer can look at it and say, look, I've been doing this a long time. I know what I'm doing. Look at my crop. It looks good. And mid-July... You know, the leaves start to yellow or the tomato vine starts to, to rot with late blight or, you know, a certain pest shows up and it's exactly what the soil scientist said it was going to be. Because if the plant is deficient in a specific nutrient, no matter what it is, it is going to attract a disease. It is only a matter of time before the disease collides with the deficiency. You are no different Humans are no different. We believe that we're like some kind of separate thing from the rest of all biology in the world, that we somehow are, are, are you know, subject to different laws of biology and nature and chemistry. 
or not. Vitamin D isn't a vitamin, isn't a nutrient, it is a hormone. But if you have a, a deficiency and an immune regulating hormone, you're going to have inflammatory and chronic disease, and when you're hit with a symptomatic disease like a viral infection, it's going to hit you harder, period. Just like a plant that's deficient in, let's say, magnesium and calcium is going to get hit by certain diseases, and they'll be doing fine right up until they get hit by it, and boom, and they'll just die. It's up to you guys. Anyway, tune in today, and we'll learn more about this from Dr. Somerville. Hey guys and gals, uh, welcome to today's episode of Miyagi Mornings. I still need a topic for tomorrow, so if you haven't contributed to the MeWe thread yet, you might want to friend me up on MeWe if you haven't already done so. Check the top of my profile. You'll see that post, and um, we're wide open for tomorrow. I do have a lot of stuff on there to do, but I'm not feeling any of the ones I haven't done yet tomorrow. So maybe you can get in uh, a subject discussion point for Miyagi Mornings. This one doesn't come from that thread. It comes from a general overall vibe that I've been getting from not as much my community, but the liberty community at large. Like the people that aren't quite as hardcore as maybe we are. But I hear it in our own group as well, one way or another. And if you looked at the title, Why Us, Why Now? A bit of a pity party for our generation, or I should say our generations, who are sharing this time in history, because there's multiple generations alive at any moment. But people seem to act like what's going on, as bad as it is, is something unique to the human condition. Why us, why now? Why do we have to be the ones to be in the middle of a great reset? Why do we have to be the ones to be in the middle of a botched uh, vaccine rollout that's probably going to cause more problems than it's going to solve? Why do we have to be the ones to live through a global pandemic that is an overhyped cold? Why, with the whole world shut down, even when we had all these other real pandemics of the, of the past where people were literally dropping over, we didn't shut down the entire global economy. Why us? Why now? Why do we have to live in the age of censorship you know, on the Internet? Why us? Why now? You think maybe our forefathers would be like, what is this Internet you speak of? And there are other platforms that you could be using where you wouldn't be censored and you could be heard all over the world. What are you bitching about? Here's the thing. It's the same but different man in the words of Tommy Chong. Every generation, at least at some point, the overlapping generations, have something that happens in the world where they say, why us? Why now? Here's some. Recent history, because a few hundred years is recent history in the grand scheme of history of the globe, or the solar system, the universe. That's, it's a mouse fart. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a microsecond to midnight, if today is midnight, right? But even in the human condition, like a couple hundred years, is a minute to midnight, something like that. So, how about the... Uh, the young couples who had just got married, the young kids just out of college, the young kids that just got their first job, you know, that couple that got married and got pregnant, and old man got himself a good blue collar job because his brother knew somebody at the steel mill, and next thing you know, they were drafted into either the Korean or Vietnam War. That would be, for most of you, that would be your parents or your grandparents. Don't you think they said, why us, why now? You know, the kid with his whole life in front of him, 19 years old report for duty to a war that we didn't want to fight, that we had no business in at all, that, that, that did no benefit to anybody in this country, and people having their lives torn asunder, riots in the streets, all of the shit that went along with it. Don't you think those people said, why us, why now? Why does this happen to be us? Well, let's just rewind back prior to the Korean War, World War II, and the Great Depression. 
You don't think the kid that grew up on a farm that always provided all their needs that all of a sudden one day saw it turn to dust when he was like 11 years old and just fought like hell to get through it? And at like 18 or 19, he got that same letter that his kids would get for Vietnam and Korea? And when they finally got things just starting to turn in the right direction, millions of men were ripped from their families and sent over to fight another war that Huh, one prior to that, we'll get to it in a second. We basically caused. Why us, why now? A war that needed to be fought, but why us, why now? Let's rewind back. Back to, you know, 20s, the teens, early 1900s. You know, everybody knows the Great Depression. We had a huge depression in the early 1900s, late 1800s. Well, World War One. You think the people that had their lives torn apart to go fight a war that we had no business in in the first place that would cause another great war, didn't say, why us, why now? What about the, the, the crime of 1876 when silver was demonetized, destroying the wealth of blue-collar Americans across the country? You don't think they said, why us, why now? What about the Civil War, where this country went to war with itself and destroyed half of itself, with brother slaying brother with grape shot? With men coming home with missing arms, missing legs at a time when you might have been better off dying than having survived it. Why us? Why now? You don't think the people that lived in bondage of slavery prior to that time didn't say, why us? Why now? You don't think that the young American republic during the War of 1812, when we had just started to get a new country on its feet, didn't say to itself when its capital burned, why us, why now, when its greatest victory was two weeks after the war was over in the hands of Andrew Jackson and still we had lost men in that? You don't think they said, why us, why now? You don't think the, the colonists who simply wanted to breathe free, who were willing to stay part of, uh, uh, of the United Kingdom and under the king, if only they were given some semblance, some, some little tiny piece of, okay, yeah, you can have a say in your own life, had to fight a bloody revolution that lasted eight years? You don't think they said, why us, why now? You don't think the original people that came here from Europe, who simply wanted to pursue freedom without being a serf, that watched the people around them die in the first settlements, didn't say, why us, why now? You don't think the people that, let's go further back, you don't think the people that were raided by the hordes under the Khans, Genghis and otherwise, didn't say, why us, why now? You don't think the Jews that were rounded up in World War II will bounce around a little bit, that were rounded up in World War II and saw the piles of shoes grow as their cohorts were murdered? Didn't say, why us, why now? Do you ever think, good, bad, or worse, that there's ever been a time in history where any generation has lived its entire life without ever asking the question, why us, why now? The answer is no. How many smallpox pandemics were there. We don't know exactly, but we know it was enough over time to kill 50 million people. 50 million. You don't think they said during those those surges, why us, why now? 50 million. Bubonic plague, multiple times, one time killed off somewhere between one-third to one-half of all life on the planet. You don't think they said, why us, why now? And it's not that it was worse. It's just, there's always something. People in power will use that power to make other people subservient. And diseases, pestilence, famines, natural disasters, they happen. And the more people you have, the more cowards you have. And the more cowards you have, the easier it is to control a society. 
It's not that there is a larger portion of society that are cowards today. It's there's more people. So if the percentage is half, you have more cowards. If the percentage is 10%, you have more cowards. The percentage is probably where it is, which is somewhere between 40 and 60. I don't know. I'm not that interested. But if anything in there, doesn't matter if it's 1%, when the population swells, there's more people alive today than if you go back 200 years ever existed. From the, from the time we can tell that man probably existed up till that point, our best, our best guess is there's more people alive today than all those people that were li- born and died in that timeline. We have a lot of cowards. We have very sophisticated psychopaths that leverage cowardice to control the population. And if you have more than half the population exhibiting cowardice, you put them in a state of fear, you can pretty much control everybody, not only the cowards, as long as everybody is an everybody who buys in to us needing them. But you have a choice. You have a choice. Instead of saying, why us, why now? Say, it's always us. It's always now. What can we do with this now? What can we use to advance our own gains and our own lives and our own communities with this now? You're not special, my little snowflakes. You're really not. Nothing you're going through is even close to the shit that your grandfather went through when mortars were, when 88 millimeter frickin' um, artillery was following around him in the Battle of the Bulge. Nothing that we're going through is even close to the real version of the Bring Out Your Dead skit from Monty Python when a third to a half of all humanity died, when entire towns just disappeared. We're not special. We're not unique, unless we choose to be. If you want to be special and you want to be unique, then you're the person that says, to hell with everything that I do not control. I will live for me and my family. I will educate my children outside of their system. I will see to my own health and welfare, and I will ignore their dietary and largely, not all, but largely their medical advice. I will move my family, if necessary, to a place where local tyranny is not in existence. So that at least the tyranny I have to deal with is at least one layer up. County or state. You pick the right place, your county doesn't even give a shit. That's where I live. The county doesn't care what I do here. I've talked to my sheriff's deputies. There are a hell of a lot more laws on the books that they do not even care about than ones that they do. They don't have time for it in their own words. You choose what to do with why us, why now. You can see it as something totally special and so totally unique and, no, and, and, and different than any other time in history. And therefore, it is something that you cannot resist or fight against and you are doomed. Or you can see it as something that has been done over and over and over again. It is the same. And at the same time, because we're at a different place in, in society, in time, population, the world, politics, technology, etc., it's also unique. You can see it as the same but different, man. And then you can look to the past and say, who thrived at these fluxes in history? What did they do? How did they act? How did they respond? What made them successful? And you can take the same thing they did, make it a little bit different, man, and do it today. The people I know who run online business, I mean little bitty businesses like mine, up to mid-sized businesses, the best year they have had in their existence, 2020. 
They grew in the middle of a pandemic. Little mom and pop coffee shops and things like that, brick and mortars, you know, depending on where they were, they either got hit hard or they did okay, and now they're blowing up if they're in places that are opening up. It's hard. It doesn't mean that you can't be in the wrong place at the wrong time, this time and now, but it's up to you to adapt. I know if you have everything you worked for wiped out, it's hard to rebuild. I know that because it's happened to me in the past. And But you have two choices. Crawl in your grave early or rebuild. Times that happened to me, I'd say there's twice in my life, almost everything I'd worked for was taken from me. It wasn't because it was this time, us, and now. It was just because there was a confluence of events that worked out that way, and I lost. There's just a lot more people doing it at the same time now. That's an opportunity. Instead of why us, why now? Why don't you ask yourself, since it is us now, what can we do with it? With that, it's been another episode of Miyagi Mornings. I'll be back tomorrow to wrap up the week. Hey, guys and gals, welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 80, right? So we are uh, rocking along here. I mean, it's not going to be longer to have 100 episodes of Miyagi Morning. That's, that's pretty badass. I think a lot of people start things and never get to 100 of them. Uh, I've seen plenty of podcasts flame out at about 20. And I think there's actually kind of a momentum that builds when you do anything 100 times. That's kind of either a, a, a pattern or if you decide, if I do something, I'm going to do it at least 100 times before I quit. That can become a routine. Or maybe it can become a ritual. And if we follow rituals, sometimes we get better results doing the exact same thing other than making them routine. So this all stemmed from a question today that I got on MeWe. And if you want to ask a question or suggest a topic for Miyagi Mornings, the best place to do it is the MeWe post at the top of my profile. There, friend me up if you haven't already. Check the top of my profile. You'll see that post sticky to the top and post it there. And be direct. And here's a great example of being direct, short, to the point with a question where I know exactly what you're asking, I know why you're asking it, and I can do a good job responding to it. So this individual said, um, I've been developing my morning routine this week, which makes an interesting post, which includes posting a daily video update to Firon.com. Firon.com. The choice is yours, right? The Firon.com to guide my day. What's your morning routine and why? Why is it so important? And so, as you'll hear today, part of my morning routine is figuring out what I'm going to do for Miyagi mornings before I do everything else. And thinking about it and ruminating on it kind of as I, uh, as I go through those other activities. So that by the time I sit down and have this discussion with you guys, it's not, oh, look, there's a question. It's like a lightning answer. I've actually thought about it. And as I was doing that and thinking about this one, I realized something about my morning routine. It's not just a routine. It's a ritual. And what's the difference between routine and ritual? Well, when I was in the Army, I definitely, especially when I was in school, right, and when I was in basic training and I was in advanced school, I definitely had a morning routine because I had to. There was things that had to be done and included, like, lining your shoes up, dress right, dress, as they call it. It means they're all the same and everything's designed exactly the way you're supposed to and your underwear folded to a certain. You better have done that the night before you don't have time to do it in the morning, but you check everything, make sure everything's exactly the way it's supposed to be, open your wall locker and all the... uh all the hangers need to be a certain distance apart, so you decide whether you can use two or three fingers, depending on whether you have the freedom to do that or not, what kind of school you're in. But it all needs to look uniform, and that was something we did every morning. It was routine. Over time, people that do really well in that environment turn it into a ritual. 
by thinking about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And a really switched on NCO that was my drill instructor in AIT had a conversation with me about that. It made me a better soldier. And it's something I've always stuck with. There's a, there's a video of a Navy SEAL doing a commencement address. And he says, start your day by making your bed. And I've seen a lot of people comment when people post that, like, I'll make bed, blah, 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 blah. And they throw the thing out there. It doesn't matter. I'm going to climb in it the next night. I'm going to make your bed. And see, those people missed the entire point of what this man was trying to explain to people with an open mind. If you had listened with an open mind, you would have understood. Maybe it's not making the bed for you. He was in SEAL school. He was in SEAL school. It's tough. I'm going to airborne school. That's like freaking going to play canasta with your aunt compared to SEAL school. Right. When he was when he was he developed this ritual for himself. He said every night, at least you knew when you came home dog tired, you had a nice bed to get into. But he was thinking about the end at the beginning. That's when you go from routine to ritual. So you can have a routine. Some people have routines every day. They get up, they brush their teeth, they have coffee, they do something, they go out the door, they go to work. Right. It's a routine. And you can do it without even thinking about it. You just do it. And it's useful because it sets a pattern and it has value and it does get you into a state of mind to get the things you need done in the day done. And it does create a reinforcement of what's called circadian rhythm. Circadian rhythm is a part of your sleep ritual, right? And it's very important that we kind of maintain a common time that we go to bed and wake up and then how we have activity throughout the day. In fact, circadian means about a day and it's, and it's, it's root. And so those rituals upon waking up or going to sleep or those routines, depending on how we come at them, um, are very important to that circadian rhythm, which is very important to our overall health and our mental state, etc. What switches from, again, routine to ritual, though, isn't burning incense and chanting Om or whatever, right? And like, there's nothing wrong with that. If you have uh, meditation or something like that in a more formal form as part of your ritual or routine, um, then you should certainly continue on with that. And uh, there's nothing at all. I'm not making fun. I'm just saying it doesn't have to be. What makes what I do a ritual, for instance, we'll go through a little bit of what I do every morning. I wake up. The first thing I do when I wake up is I go make a batch of coffee to have coffee. And when I make that coffee and I grind it, you know, I think about why I'm grinding it. I'm grinding it because the essential oils in those beans that have been, because it was roasted, right, are still there. And by cracking them open, it's like cracking open peppercorn. And I boil the water and I stop the water. I make my coffee at 200 degrees. And when I pour, I look at that 200 on my electric kettle and I think about that 200 degrees and why it makes better coffee than boiling the water. Okay. And then I sit down. Generally, my wife is getting ready to do her day. So she's away from and it's quiet. And I sit down and I have that first cup of coffee alone in total silence. And I think about what I'm going to do with my day. And I savor that cup of coffee. And then my wife will come out and get ready to go get the grandkids. So now our rituals and routines are overlapping. And I know that's going to happen 99% of the time, right? Uh, occasionally, like today, she had a day off. It threw my routine out of whack and my timing out of whack because usually she gets out of bed and I lay in bed for like another five minutes. She goes to the bathroom and that makes me realize it's time to get up. I don't have an alarm clock. So today that didn't happen. So I got a little... A little fudging in it. But when she leaves, I take one of the dogs, either I get on the floor with my old man dog who can't do it on the couch anymore, I let the one of the other dogs up and I rotate those dogs so that each dog gets some extra attention, each, you know, in regular intervals. And I sit there and I drink a second cup of coffee and I do absolutely nothing except think about the fact that I'm spending time with a friend 
who I'm going to outlive. Because that's how I view my dogs, friends that I'm going to outlive. I'm sure at some point that might change, but right now that's the odds, right? I'm going to outlive my friend and how much we've done together and how much time we have left. And I think about that. And that puts me in touch with my own mortality. It's a very simple thing. And I'm function stacking, believe it or not, right? Because the dog's getting the attention and we're building that bond and we're continuing that relationship. But yet I'm getting something additional. I'm also gaining that animal's energy and he's getting mine in a totally relaxed state. Then I go and I let the birds out. When I let the birds out, I get their eggs. I observe my animals and I think about what they're going to do today and how their patterns different from the day before. And I play, pick up the eggs and I think about the fact that we have nourishment and I think about the fact that we have revenue because we're going to sell some of those eggs and I bring them to the house and then I go out and I dump all the duck pools. And when I dump the duck pools, I think about the fact that I'm now irrigating and fertilizing and then I'm going to move these pools so it can be done again and I'm providing my animals with what they need to be happy and healthy for the rest of this day. And it just continues like that. And I could get up, have coffee, pet the dog, just do the exact same thing, but not contemplate the significance or the meaning thereof. And I do other things that are not quite as set in stone. So when I move my duck pools, right, I'm on a new part of my property than I was the day before. I look around. How are things going? Maybe this tree needs a branch pruned. If I don't have my pruners on me, Make a mental note to come back and prune that branch. I look at how things are growing. I say to myself, what was this like last year? Are we ahead or behind? And I don't do it with worry. I just do it with a simple understanding of timing. Like, did the weather actually accelerate or decelerate? Or am I behind? What do I need to take care of? And then when that's all done, I, I walk my property. Specifically, any areas where I think I might need to be paying attention to something, and I take that in. And while I'm walking my property, I'm thinking about doing this segment, and I'm thinking about doing my show for the day, my podcast for the day. I then come inside. I have another cup of coffee. And by then, the kids are here, so I spend some time with the kids. And then I come into my office, and I do this segment. I do Miyagi mornings. Then I check my email. When I'm doing this, I'm thinking about, am I giving what I've promised to you? When I check my email, my ritual is over. I'm into actual routine. And why? And there's two reasons I don't do the email before Miyagi mornings. One is it's routine versus ritual, so it breaks the ritual chain. It's just something that has to be done, right? I'm not really, like when I go through email, I don't have time to be mindful of every, I'm sorry, I don't. Like that's why I ask for brief emails specific to the point so I can respond as quickly as possible and file them for follow-up. And so that's one reason, because it breaks the ritual. But the other side of it is, there, and I, I don't mean to offend anybody, but inevitably there'll be at least one really stupid email, at least one every morning waiting for me. And if I read that email right before I do this video, it's going to affect my performance. And sometimes the question is literally stupid, and I won't give any examples. I don't want to insult or hurt anybody's feelings because you might not have meant it to be stupid when you said it. You might have like phrased it wrong and maybe it really wasn't stupid. It just seems stupid because you like left out a couple words. I don't know. Uh, sometimes it's genuinely stupid and sometimes there's nothing wrong with it except, well, I've had that question 800,000 times in 12 years. So I'm responding to it unfairly. And I always try to catch myself when I'm with that. And I either send the person like, okay, I covered that in this episode or these five episodes or here's the one sentence answer or something and be fair to that person. But in any event, that is going to derail what I do for you here. So 
then I go back into more of a ritual. So after I do this and then batch out my email, I'm not looking at my email again until my podcast is live. Now I have to, I've gone through email, I've done work, and I want my performance to be elevated. When I get on the microphone, it's like, hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, when I do that, I want to be in flow. Right, And I don't mean some mystical um or anything like that. Again, nothing wrong with it if you do. But I don't want any of this negativity coming at me. And if I'm you know, talking about something that makes me angry or something, I want it to be pure and from that alone, not infected by this other thing. So then I go back to ritual. And what I do is I make another cup of coffee or a cup of tea, depending on how late in the day it is, if I got thrown off on timing. I pet my dog. And I'm in making that batch think about it or my wife makes it for me sometimes because she's back at that point with the kids and all and so if she made it for me I think about the fact that she did it for me and how nice that is I take that cup of coffee I drink a little bit of it so it won't splash and go on my hands and I walk my property and this time I don't really go like oh that needs this doing that I just walk take at least one lap sometimes two or three whatever I feel I need that day I walk I breathe in the air and I just look at what we've done in eight years. And I just, at that point, it's not, oh, it needs this, or oh, it needs that, or oh, I should add that there, or here's another opportunity. It's just, let it be what it is. Look how amazing this is. Look how different this is. Then I come in, do my show notes. Now we're into afternoon usually, right? Do my show notes, and I produce that show. And that is way past routine. Routine is what we do with a J-O-B. And if you want to be an entrepreneur, I'm going to tell you not only do you need to set certain tasks and certain things that need to be done when they need to be done so they get done, but you need to ritualize them because you are not punching a clock working by the hour to get a paycheck. Okay? You are cre- If you are an entrepreneur, if you are a business owner, you are creating or delivering something to another person, and that is an incredible honor and it's an incredible responsibility and I am not exaggerating here. I'm not fluffing this. I'm not, I'm not selling it to you. I'm telling you that's how I feel. When I started doing TSP, it was just an idea. And within a few weeks when I started getting feedback, I tried this thing and it worked. Thank you. I thought, whoa, wait a minute. So I'm going to speak, give advice and people are going to do it. Like I knew that, right? I knew that, but it's like, if you've become a father, right, to say, you know, you made a decision with your wife, we're going to have a kid. And you do what husbands and wives do to make a kid. And then one day, the little piece stick comes back with a plus on it. I'm going to be a dad. But somewhere between there and baby coming out, there's the moment for the mom and the dad, especially if it's the first time, where you really go, oh, wait, I'm going to be a dad. Oh. And the weight comes and then you have to, you have to process it and think about all the wonderful things and all the burden and all the responsibility. Running a business is the same. You've, especially like you didn't buy a franchise or something, right? You took an idea and you made it into something. You've given birth to a child. It's just not a human child. It's a, it's an idea child. It's a product child. It's a service child. It's an informational child. And then it's up to you to raise it. You're not going to do it with the routine mindset of what you do in a job because you'll work just hard enough to make it work so that you don't get fired. But that doesn't work. 
when you're trying to build something and create something. I think this is for everybody, but definitely entrepreneurs, business owners, et cetera, side hustle, whatever. And for people in retirement too, I think that we, we lose a part of ourselves when we lose that routine, ritualize your routine, understand its significance and its meaning. And if you struggle with that, maybe you need new things in your routine that will give you meaning. Again, just the simple act of dumping water and moving a tray. That can be a job when I hired somebody to do it. I had a young man working here that I had to do the water every day to save me time. To him, it was work. To me, I've just fertilized a tree that's going to provide for, you know, decades for me or for some other landowner. I've watered that tree. I've refreshed that pan and I've given it to my duck. It's not religious, but it is ritual. We could all do, I think, with a little more ritual in our lives. It makes us contemplate things a little bit longer and make better decisions. We don't act in haste. With that's been Jack Spirico with another edition of Miyagi Mornings. We'll be back next week with 81 through 85. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series.